0: Good morning. Let me invite you to open a Bible to the book of Revelation. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying together Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. I don't know if you noticed on your way in, but we do have some new Bibles back there, so if you'd like to grab one, you can. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have one, feel free to take it home with you. Open it up and begin to read. This morning again, Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, here John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever Amen. Let me pray together. Oh Lord, please help us this morning to become more like the people that you will ultimately, inevitably make us to be. Do it through your word, by the power of your spirit, for the glory of Christ we ask it in his name. Amen. So it's one of the more seminal questions we might ask ourselves. If you could see into the future how your life plays out, what you become, would you do it? Would you look into that future? Let's suppose for a moment that you would Let's suppose also that you then did, you looked into the future, you saw all of that. The next question has to be, how would what you saw change you today? Obviously, if you saw that you'd become a poorer or more degraded version of yourself, as in the movie Groundhog Day or maybe Adam Sandler's Click, I bet you'd instantly make the changes necessary for an inevitable improvement Right? And, and certainly, if things had turned out gloriously, then you would do all at present to at least maintain the end result that you saw, wouldn't you? One of the great things about the Bible, which we find uniquely in the book of Revelation, is a look into a future that is as sure as Christ is raised from the dead. We're given windows into heaven itself and into the glories that will mark you and me, us, as a perfected people in the future that's nearer now than when we first believed. And we're going to frequent those windows. We're going to frequently gaze into them and pray that God changes us today by what we see of our beauties then, that to a great degree we might really become a heavenly people in this world. And as it relates to race relations. That is what this world needs us to be most of all. If you're just returning to us, uh, we're in our annual First Five series where we spotlight key issues for being the church in the world and we try to give it a biblical address, an address from the Bible. So, so far we've seen that we want to be a church above all that's devoted to prayer, and to the ministry of the Word. If you want an advertisement for this church, the Mount Church, there it is, without apology. We want to be a people who are devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So that's how we've started. Today, we want to look a little more outward at the issue of ethnic harmony, and to that end, we want to look into heaven by the window given to us in our text this morning. We want to see that for modeling an indissoluble racial harmony. We need to keep a vision beyond the horizon of this world, to truly love people and honor the gospel of Christ in this world. Friends, the world, as you know, has its solutions to racial discord, and still, it seems, after so long and some advances, that discord basically remains unchanged. Just look around us today. And so it's our unique privilege to long for and model something that's better, something that is supernaturally and eternally binding. We know something that the world does not know, and that is the saving grace of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only where that is can unity abide between sinners whatever other differences may exist we know the one who's able to unite sinners so let's come to the window in our text let's behold our future state and let's pray that it changes us today our leading exhortation starts in verse 9 it's this it's to behold the great multitude behold the great multitude and the first thing to see is that this is a multitude of mercy. It is a multitude, I mean, that has this existence, the one that we see in our text, this existence, by the mercy of God. And to see this initially, we have only to see that we've picked up in the midst of something else. That's why our passage begins, After this, after this, I looked and behold. So something has come before what we're seeing in our Text it runs all the way back, in fact, to chapter 5, where Jesus has proven to be the only person in the universe who is able to bring all of God's saving purpose to pass. But here's the thing. As you move on from chapter 5, you read chapter 6, you come into chapter 7, the immediate result of him bringing that saving purpose to pass has been a vast display of divine justice. It's been one judgment after another, after another, up until we come to our text. And in our text, really all of chapter 7, relief finally arrives for the church. The flood of judgments that come against the world are not for us. We're in the ark of Christ. And God Himself, chapter 7, verse 3, has sealed us up. In Christ. So, no matter the tottering of the earth, no matter the depravity of our opponents, no matter the great pains involved in following Jesus, and there are many, we're going to make it home. We are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. It's not our merit, but God's mercy sparing us by Christ and Him crucified, that has set us in heaven at an unbridgeable distance away from the condemnation we deserved. This is, we are a part of a multitude of mercy. And next, I want you to see that it is an innumerable multitude, an innumerable multitude multitude a great multitude is what john says that no one could number and that is amazing that is amazing right are we to doubt that some of the brightest minds god ever created are in this great multitude and now they have glorified brains no less so just forget about the tech industry right Silicon Valley and whatnot, when it comes to numbering the redeemed, even the tech of heaven, it seems, is at a loss. Really, it's a fulfillment here. It's God's promise made good. It's Genesis 15, verse 5. Oh, Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. When was the last time you let God take you outside? When all is dark in the world. And encourage your heart by the number of stars in the sky. Look up. The number of my people will be like that. (laughs) Believe. Dear ones, it's in our nature to be discouraged by what appears to be scant results. But often that's because our eyes are on our pews instead of God's promise. They're on our kingdoms instead of doing our part for Christ's kingdom. They're on the extent of our immediate influence. On Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the things. We want to be influencers immediately. Our eyes are on that instead of on the final efficacy of Christ's blood, and I want you to cheer up. Apparently, the purchase of Christ's grace is more than glorified human ability to calculate. The final tally of this multitude of mercy is innumerable. Think about it. Let's keep hope alive in the ministry of the gospel. And along that line, see further that it is a multi-ethnic multitude. It's a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And so actually, it's not just multi-ethnic, not just multi-ethnic. The multitude of Christ's people includes someone, and we can pray some thousands of someones, from every ethno-linguistic people group that will ever exist. Right now that list is somewhere between 16,000 and 18,000 groups subdivided not only by ethnicity, but even by dialects, linguistics within a shared ethnicity. He's saying here that no such group will be left entirely in the cold of fallen nature. Every nation. All tribes. All peoples, all languages will have heirs of God. As sure as the nails pierced our Lord's hands and feet, His gospel is going to pierce into every company of humanity and save sinners from among it. In this sense especially, He is the Savior of the world. No one is in or out because of who their parents are, what their DNA says. The blood of Jesus ignores things like that. It pays no mind to the boundaries that you and I set up. Its unstoppable passion is simply for souls. Whatever Ancestry.com says about them. Christ came into the world to save a lot of sinners. And He has, and He will. The question for us is, is that moving us into the kind of labor required for such a great harvest? Would you see that beneath, understand that beneath the surface of an innumerable and global multitude of divine mercy is a multitude of laborers who counted the value of a soul as more than all the world and even their own lives. Here, looking at this multitude, in this multitude, are the labors of, say, a Stephen, the first Christian martyr. (laughs) Here are the labors of Paul, Hear the labors of a Polycarp or a Patrick of Ireland. Hear the labors of an Athanasius holding together orthodoxy in the early church. Hear the labors of John Huss or David Brainerd going to the Native American Indians here in the 1600s. Hear the labors of Charles Spurgeon and Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong and John Payton who went to share the gospel with cannibals. They're going to be cannibals. People who used to be cannibals are going to be in the kingdom. Because John Payton went and preached the gospel to them. Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, Helen Roosevelt in the Congo, Conrad M. Bayway today, Paul Washer, John Piper, you. And I pray me. And all who have taken courage by the work and worth of Jesus to put even their lives on the line for the sake of a soul. Earlier in the Bible, Isaiah 49.6 says, God says, it is too light a thing, speaking of his servant, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up Jacob only. I will make you as a light for the what? the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So woe to us then if we do not contribute to this multitude by loving, embracing the sacrifice that often attends preaching Christ to people who are very much unlike ourselves. Unlike ourselves. One more thing to see about this great multitude, and it moves us in the direction we now want to head. That however great it is, however consisting of so many individuals, however distinct in so many ways, they are not subdivided by affinity, they are not segregated by ethnicity, they aren't a multi campus church. They don't have multiple services in service of more fleshly marks and preferences. No. They are, and we will be, one day, one single assembly of the triune God. Granted, glorification will resolve all the things of earth that continue to plague us today. But the point, again, is to look into this window, into our eternal future, and see what we will be and why. And to so adjust ourselves to it that we become a foretaste right now, today, of it. In other words, in other words, that there will be an everlasting resolution for racial discord means there already is one. And we, the people of the gospel, are to exemplify and offer it to one another and to the world. Do you really believe that the grace of God is stronger than border wars? Do we really believe that the death of Christ has begun a new single bloodline that is able to reconcile today's versions of David and Goliath, not just for a moment, but for all eternity? Do we really believe we have something by grace that can forever harmonize a German nihilist and a Jewish monotheist around this throne of God where the Lamb is exalted? That we have something we can show to and share with the Pakistani girl at the end of our hall, or the Indian guy in our lab group, or the Armenian family in our neighborhood, or the Chinese couple that's just across the street but you don't ever talk to, them. or the African person that runs in all of our circles. Do we really believe in the regenerating and reconciling power of the gospel of God? Let's come to the second exhortation. We have, behold the great multitude, and now behold their oneness. Starting in the middle of verse 9, John describes four displays of our future unity, and with them we're meant to meet with prescriptions, medicines for today. And so first, you see they have a shared posture. A shared posture. The great multitude is standing. Where are they standing? Before the throne. <laughs> and before the Lamb. They are united in acknowledging the self-sacrificial lordship of Jesus. They're gathered every single one of them, around the enthroned Lamb of God. There is perfect clarity in every heart about who owns the throne. And to state the obvious, it's not us. So much of racial inequality is due to confusion over this reality. You and I, we are not the king of kings. Our country Our culture is not the seat of God's throne. The kingdoms we've made for ourselves, based upon our cultural habits, our upbringing, our likes in itself, it's not all bad, but none of it is the very best. No, one and nothing sits upon that throne but God and the Lamb. And so this is a checkpoint for us. When it comes to making peace and living in peace with all peoples, are we, in all our distinctive makeup, are we sitting on this throne? Or are we standing before it? Gladly affirming the overarching majesty of Jesus Christ. At the heart of division between peoples is self-exaltation. So, is that or the exaltation of the Lamb, the usual inclination of our souls. Which one? See, in this window, the day is coming when, while we've kept so much of what distinguishes us, yet the reign of the Lamb, in and over all, will be the chief source of our everlasting unity. We will long for nothing more than as beneficiaries of His throne to stand at attention to it is that our heart posture right now to submit to Christ to do as he says to be what he has died to make of us to subject our dividing things to his binding love and authority we will have a shared posture in this day we will also have shared garments now i know that's not so fashionable today in our hyper individualistic and look at me society but we do we do put that aside for attending certain schools we put that aside for playing for certain teams showing a certain degree of camaraderie in this or that event or cause. And when we do this, it says something. We're all wearing the same garments. It says we're together. We're a team. We're one, at least for a minute. But what if there were garments that, if you were given to wear them, signified a most terrific oneness for all eternity, not just for a minute. What I want to see in the passage is that there is. This entire assembly is clothed in white robes. So, to the issue of ethnic harmony, see that the color of our skin and all that involves is no longer the preoccupying sight when we look at one another. It's the color of our robes that are covering our skin. Can I tell you what that means? In Revelation, these robes account for at least two things. One, as we see in chapter 7, verse 14, just down from our passage, it's that we've been forgiven and we have been purified from all our sins. And two, not just that we've been counted righteous with the righteousness of Christ, but that we have been actually made righteous. Revelation 19 verse 8 seems to say that the fabric of these robes, so to speak, consists of our righteous deeds. It consists of our acting out heaven on earth. And so if you can imagine it, Just think now, an innumerable multitude clothed in white because all their sins have been washed away and every one of them has been made out to be a truly good person. Again, (laughs) talk about expanding our understanding of the extent and power of Christ's death for us on the cross. Consider all that He bore to be such a blessing to so great a multitude for all eternity. And as that sits then in our minds, let's not fail to consider its implications for us and for ethnic harmony today. What if, while not being oblivious to the color of one's skin, we maintained this view of one another as first and foremost, Christ's redeemed from sin? What if? What if... what we saw and chiefly regarded about one another was our identity in Christ? What if it was how God sees us in Christ? What if it was as those for whom Jesus died? What if it was as those wearing the garments of Team Righteousness? Again, what if they have a shared posture and shared garments? They also have a shared grip. They all, as John says, have something in their hands. What is it? Palm branches. Palm branches in their hands, which takes us back to Israel's deliverance out of slavery in Egypt, takes us back to Christ's triumphal entry to deliver His people from their slavery, our slavery to sin, which is all to say that these have an eternal grip on the victory of God and of the victor, Jesus Christ. And as we have our grip on that, as we are together gripped by that, my guess is that so many of our more inconsequential gripes will fade away. Beloved, listen, when our hearts care about walking in the victory of Jesus, when they take care not to sin, when they care about helping others fight temptation to sin, we will tend, I think, to sin less. Not be sinless. Sin less. We'll be more sensitive to living with one another and others in light of the risen king. We'll lay down our swords and walk together, as it were, with palm branches in our hands. So much of what divides people of ethnic variety or not is owing to mistaking our molehills for Mount Zion and the king who ascended it by way of Mount Calvary. Sometimes... We've just got to win the day. That's how we feel. That's how we think. Hyper-competitive. I get it. (laughs) we just got to win the day. Our persuasions have to preside. God forbid our issues, however they may need to be addressed, take a back seat to the edification of another person's soul or come under the banner of the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why, might I ask, would we seek war, abide in ethnocentrism, stand pat in our sinful biases, promote discord and wicked ignorance, when as mostly, I think, maybe even all of us are Gentile Christians who have been delivered from all our sins by the divine work of a Jewish Man to globally publish his gospel of peace. Are those palm branches in your hands today? Is his victory foremost in our heart? We have a shared posture? We have shared garments. Do we have a shared grip? On the victory of Christ one more and it's the apex here. they have a shared cry, one loud voice. So you, you open this window and you'll not just see something glorious, you will hear something glorious. You'll hear billions upon, billions upon billions in all our ethnic distinctions, all the distinctions that make us our individual selves, yet crying out not with so many voices, plural, but with one loud voice. This single great affirmation that will echo down throughout eternity, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's the eruption of redeemed and glorified souls gathered in unity around the throne of God and grace, O friends. It is instructive to consider here what we don't hear. What heaven seems to have entirely disabled and silenced. In view of God and the Lamb here, where is all the posturing for human preeminence? I'm greater, my culture is greater, my this is greater. Where is it? Where is all the talk of who gets what and who's liable for giving it? Where are the verbal sword thrusts? Where are the self exalting, the pot stirrers, the backbiters? Where are the songs that are charged with racial slurs and overtones and innuendo? Where are the shouters of intersectionality and Cancel culture and critical race theory. Where where, where are all those voices? Where are they? Let me tell you something. All of that dies. Where God in Christ is all in all. That does not at all mean conversations don't need to be had. Only that as they are had, the starting point for you and for us is a united song about the Lamb who came into the world not to cancel cultures, but to cancel our sins. And create out of Adam's fallen race a new and living one. We begin with salvation. belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a gracious agreement amongst all these people from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all languages that we are one in needing salvation and one in being unable to achieve it ourselves. That we're one, that is, in having been hopeless sinners, but also one then in being the recipients of God's sovereign and saving grace. It's that we are one in then and there inhabiting a glory we once despised. Incredible. It's that we're one in acknowledging God's majesty and the Lamb's supremacy over every single one of us. One in worshiping before His throne. One in exalting His love and power to save any soul at any time from anywhere. One in being the concrete expression of His inscrutable purpose to save. One in being His assembly, His temple, His body, His family, a people who prefer pronouns like our God even over my or mine. It's that we're one in beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One in enjoying His everlasting beauty, glory, radiance, comforts. One in appropriating His Centrality, one in existing forever and always increasingly to the praise of His glorious grace. Do you believe in the reconciling power of our God and Savior? Do we believe in the reconciling power of the gospel of our God? As we're seeing, we certainly will one day. Why not today? But among all the rivaling voices in our world today, is this the one we share? Soon enough, every word and deed that emanates from us will emanate forever from the joy of being granted a share in the omnipotent grace of Jesus Christ. This is the medicine. This is the remedy that takes the table of nations and seats them around one table, one throne, with one loud and awesome cry. Posture, garments, grip, voice. And so we come to John's final exhortation and that's this. Behold, the angelic, amen, in verses 11 and 12. It seems that in witnessing the worshipful unity of all the redeemed, the heavenly host simply cannot stay quiet. You need to probably remember here that angels do have a vested interest. You see this in Hebrews. They have a vested interest in the happiness of the saints. They're ministers to our salvation. And of course, they also have a vested interest in the glory of Jesus. Peter tells us, recall, that angels have longed to look into the things that have been preached to us. In 1 Peter, all oh, that the gospel and the glories of Jesus are the study and intrigue of heavenly beings ought to compel us in the same way, shouldn't it? But here now, it seems they, they see and hear the grand outcome of it all. That's what this is. They witness the church that God has wrought by Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of His intercession for our everlasting unity, as in John 17, which we're going to be coming to in February. So come back. Okay. So they, they witness all of this, and this angelic host, this choir, standing in the congregation with us, And hearing our worship, they then also explode in worship. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So do you see what will happen? Our praise both in its content and its collectiveness, results in and receives the worshipful affirmation of angels. This is what it's always been about. That's what they're doing. (laughs) Amen. This is what it's always been about. To God be the glory, great things He has done. So loved He the world that He gave them His Son, who yielded His life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth, the whole earth, hear His voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. They've now come to the Father through Jesus the Son and they are giving Him the glory. Great things He has done. The lyrics are a little bit different here. But the point is the same. What they've witnessed is the goal of creation and redemption achieved. It's not thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No, here, the two are then one. And it's being done. And God has done it. It's a divine work from first to last. And so great a work, I want you to see, so great a sight that his praise will rightly remain to the highest pitch forever and ever and ever, blessing him as our blessedness glorying in Him as our God, regaling Him for His perfect wisdom, thanking Him for His sovereign mercies, honoring Him as our Lord and our Savior and treasure, ascribing to Him all power and might for all He's done to create this, and it will never cease. It is such a wonder that we will have fuel enough to worship our triune God together Forever, what a window to open. And behold. Friend, to see this with your own eyes, you must see the truth of Christ in your heart. You must know grace before you can ever hope to know glory. So listen, there's not a thing that keeps you on the outs with God except for your own sin and unbelief. But Jesus is the Savior of sinners. So, hearing all of this, why wouldn't you believe in Him today? Why wouldn't you believe in Him today? Let me encourage you to come to Christ. Let me encourage you to stand before His throne, and perhaps even unexpectedly to receive grace to forgive you of all your sins, and to be saved. Let me encourage you to join this great multitude in our text, even now. Dear ones, are we beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Are we looking regularly into the window of heaven and into our eternal future and beholding what we will be? And are we praying that the sights we see will change us today. Let me ask us, is the grace that makes this in our text, is it not already operative in each one of us? It is. And as it is, and as it relates to ethnic harmony, it's good to ask ourselves, how? How is it operative? How on this issue... Can we be become a foretaste today of what we will be forever? Maybe it starts with repentance over self-exaltation. My culture, my background, my history, my skin, my whatever, it's greater than yours. Maybe it starts there. Maybe it's the humility to engage in candid, albeit. Uncomfortable conversations at times. Maybe it involves diversifying our friendships. Maybe it involves diversifying our lunch partners who we have table fellowship with. Maybe it involves diversifying our evangelistic plan, our evangelistic efforts. Maybe it's a better grasp of the Great Commission or what it means to be a meaningful part of a gospel culture in a local church. But one thing's for sure, the only actual hope there is in the world for an eternal ethnic harmony begins and ends, as we've seen today, with Jesus. And thus, as His people, we have the unique privilege Yes, to hold out the gospel of reconciliation to every soul on earth, but also to model the power of the gospel by being a people of the gospel, a people of shared posture, garments, grip, and cry, a people who are gathered right now worshipfully around the enthroned Lamb. Let's be that may God help us let's ask him for it let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your word we thank you for everything that you have laid up for us in it and ask now that by the mercy of the Holy Spirit by his omnipotent grace you would begin to alter us to change us make us like Christ to help us to become what we will be more and more. We ask it for your glory, for the advance of the gospel, and the becoming of a beautiful people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.